Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook, at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter and Instagram, at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website, at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. Hello, lit listeners. If you dig the crazy, down and dirty, and deafening, let it all hang out. Have a nice day, far out 1970s. You're in for a treat. Music journalist, come rock novelist Robert Duncan is here doing double duty as both author and music guru, because why wouldn't he? And my guess is he's going to dish on some folks whose records are in your collection. At 22, Robert Duncan was managing editor of the notorious Cream magazine, working in Detroit alongside his friend Lester Banks. He has contributed to Rolling Stone, Circus, Life, and dozens of publications and been singer, songwriter, and producer for several obscure bands, including Three Day, Big and Tall. He is author of The Noise, Notes from a Rock and Roll Era, a bio on Kiss, and Only the Good Die Young, Profiles of Dead Rock Stars. Robert was story consultant and interview subject for the 2019 documentary Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine, and appears in Public TV's Ticket to Write. He has anthologized in Springsteen on Springsteen. His poems have been published in Mentano, a journal of contemporary Dada writing and art, and Patti Smith gave him a shout-out in Year of the Monkey. He is founder of the advertising and design firm Duncan Channon and its Tip Records subsidiary. Robert was born in a Southern family displaced to New York City and lives now with his wife, the artist and rock photographer Ronnie Hoffman, near San Francisco. Loudmouth, which draws heavily on Robert's music background, is his first novel. Welcome to the show, Robert. Well, thank you, Christy. You have such a rich rock and roll history. As a fan and a music critic, I can't wait to hear your responses in five questions. So here we go. What's the first album or record you bought? The first, the, you know, back when I was a kid, which was the early, I mean, I was born in 52, but by the time I bought bought records, it was early 60s. And you, you didn't buy albums. You couldn't afford an album as a kid. So I was, it was a 45 RPM record that I bought. And the, the first two, I bought two records at the same time, but that's, that's kind of the way I am, uh, uh, a, a pursuer of ex- excess so i bought two records at the same time and one of them was uh, i used to be embarrassed by it, but now they've they've kind of, somebody has rehabilitated his reputation critically but whoa do tell one was uh forget him by bobby rydell <laughs> i love it that's great <laughs> and and the other was the enduring anthem you don't own me by leslie Gore. yeah so, uh, yeah, so I, that, that one I was, I was proud of, but lately I, God, who was it? It might've even been that, that Bob Dylan, um, book or something, but somebody, uh, is there's, there's now Bobby Rydell is now, oh yeah, Bobby Rydell is cool, but he was, you know, listen to it. I think, <laughs> wow. What a weak, a weak tune. Well, what's, what's so, important is, is it's cool now. So it, you're, you're okay. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, it's funny how you you wind up paying attention to that. But that was always part of pop music. You know, it was always to to not be first. It was not be left behind and then to get way far ahead. Right. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to the next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What was your most memorable live music experience? Well, I, I had the good fortune of seeing, you know, there was a band that I just thought of as the Godhead. Uh, I mean, they were just, it was just a whole different level. And it was, it was uh, the Beatles. And I got to see them in, uh, in 1966 at Shea Stadium. My friend, his father was kind of Irish mafia guy, and, <laughs> and, and and he was kind of my big music friend, and we played in bands together for many years. And I, I st were born on the same day. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago, and he went to his father and said, "Hey, you know, tickets are sold out. Can you can you get us in?" And Dad got us in. Yeah, he got us into the press box at Shea Stadium, where amazingly there was no other there was no press oh, wow you know, because the press in, in 1966 it's like yeah whatever you know rock music you know i, I i'm not sure any paper had a full-time rock critic at the time mm. so uh, you know even in new york city so it was like we were alone there in the press box me and my friend and our two dates who we thought we thought we could impress <laughs> them i mean you know if you can't impress a girl with the taking taking her to the Beatles, you're in trouble. You're so in trouble. I guess I guess we were in trouble because these girls were were less than impressed, well, at least with us. What they like the Beatles, but okay. But I got to see all. I think almost all of my heroes, and I saw so I saw the Stones, who were mm. I was just big on. I saw them in in '69, and. Wow. Uh, yeah, I saw Dylan, and I saw—I don't know—we I just we went all the time uh, to, to shows, and uh, and then you know we lived uptown from the Fillmore East, so there was all that stuff coming through. Saw you know Sly Stone the first time he played um, uh, New York, um, at, and we were at this relatively small place called the Electric Circus. And you know we were like we were like twelve year old kids. We were we were all we were young. We were and it was me and my my buddy Kevin. So uh, wow, so. I mean, what an amazing time to be young and yeah. in New York. Yeah, it was great. It was it was because um, everybody, of course, came through New York. I mean, you know, at the time I wanted to be uh, well, you know, by nineteen sixty seven, it was like, oh, I want to be in San Francisco. Cause that where it seemed that's mm -hmm. where it, it seemed like everything. I was a big Moby Grape fan, um, a great band that really needs a a full uh, rediscovery. Um, you yep. know, and I like the Airplane and Big Brother and uh, oh, eventually I I played in. Well, I I was invited to be a singer in the band with the the lead guitar player from uh, from uh, Big Brother. Big Brother. So. Yeah, so, and uh, didn't do it. Yeah, I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. So I know you've interviewed everybody but God, so the next question may be difficult, but if you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band that you haven't interviewed, 
Who would it be and what's one question you would ask? I've been in the same, I was in the same room once in a, in a restaurant bar with, with uh, John Lennon, but, but, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also that guy who, who want, you know, like, I'm not going to be uncool. I'm not going to go, go bother him. Um, you know, uh, so I, I don't, I never interviewed a Beatle. That would be cool. Um, I hung out with Keith Richards one night, so that was that kind of takes care of the stones. Although I would have loved to have talked to Jagger, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, Dylan, you know the the thing about uh, I'm really doing like the pantheon here, but, but <laughs> Dil- Dylan, um, you know, I, I figure he'd be a terrible interview, uh, even though he's kind of a great interview when you see him in films, you know, old uh, you know videos, uh, press conferences yeah. and stuff like that. But so, so who would I like to talk to? I mean, you know, any one of those folks I'd take. Well, those would be good choices. What's on your playlist now? What's on my playlist? You know, I, one time, oh, a couple of years ago, I, 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 I looked at what's my, what's the stuff I play the most on, on, uh, or what is the artist I play the most? And I was surprised to find, because I don't listen to music that much, but I listen to a lot of jazz. And I found out that it was uh, the piano, the wonderful piano player, uh, Bill Evans, who's just one of my favorites. And so uh, Bill Evans is always on my playlist. And when I'm in a hurry and I can't, I don't have time to like think, who do I want to listen to? Uh, it's Bill Evans. So I've really uh, transferred my affections to jazz. But today, you know, I have my, uh, I have a granddaughter and we, I take care of her. My wife and I take care of her like four days a week. And so uh, usually not Friday, but to, uh, whatever, we're being punished for going away for two weeks. <laughs> so what I put on on a Friday when this little two and little over two year old kid who's very musically attuned uh and very uh, verbal and and uh i put on exile on main street for her and we're we're sitting at we're sitting at lunch and she's there in her little booster chair like just <laughs> the minute it came on i didn't say hey this is cool stella she you know she she just was rocking out to it and i thought yeah okay which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel Guided by Voices. How's that? That's one of my, wild. Okay. One of my favorite bands and uh, and Robert Pollard, who is the who really is Guided by Voices. Um, he's such a character. Uh, I think he he would be a wonderful protagonist. He could be he could be a kind of a Columbo style detective, kind of a wacky detective, hmm. or he could be a psycho killer. One or the other. Okay. Yeah. That's a choice I've not heard yet. I, I can tell yeah. you who's winning so far, and that's Lou Reed. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with Robert Duncan. 
This is Robert Duncan, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're back with Robert Duncan, author of the rock novel Loudmouth and former editor of Cream Magazine. Here's a synopsis of Loudmouth from Three Rooms Press, and I really like this. Loudmouth is a rock and roll coming-of-age novel about sex, drugs, attempted murder, successful arson, love, hate, faith, fraud, family, Springsteen, Clash, Stones, Cream Magazine, Lester Bangs, The 70s, New York, Detroit, Memphis, and Buck Teeth. Having read it, I can say, yep, that about covers it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. covers it. Yeah, and it may tell you something about um, a, a, a kind of a, a loose structure or a, yeah. uh, a, a kind of um, a, a jagged narrative arc or no narrative arc. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of anti-arc, so <laughs> that's fine. This is also interesting to me. There's this author's solemn guarantee that I saw on your website that reads, some of it is factual, all of it is true. And I love that distinction. So yeah, let's start there. True. To me, Loudmouth is really a Ramona Clay in the spirit of Jack Kerouac's yeah. On the Road, Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. It's classified as a novel, a work of fiction, but it's really this true story about you in the guise of your alter ego, Thomas Ranson with some embellishments and a few changed names and facts here and there. So the obvious question is, why not just write a straight-up memoir? Why did you choose to do this? Well, that's what just about everybody who I tried to sell it to um, when I was trying to get it published um, said to me, why don't you just make it a, 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 you know, a memoir? And, and I said, well, it, it's, not, it's not actually a memoir. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of non-factual things in it i do think that overall you know it's based on my my life obviously um but i didn't want to bore myself or the readers by being kind of stuck to the facts okay because not every not every story has a wonderful punchline or 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 you know 
anything like that. And I and 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 I tell you, it emerged when I was first writing it. I didn't know what it was. I was just I was writing this thing, and it was it was great. Had a, had a really weird uh, genesis. This this book, and I was just it was writing it as kind of therapy. After I had been writing for thirteen months, I'm like, what is this shit I'm writing? <laughs> and um, and then so I started going back through it and just thinking, well, could I move something around? Could I? Could this be all? Could it be a novel? Or could it be a book? Mm-hmm. Was my first question. And as I started kind of rearranging things, I realized that oh man, that this that boring part where I I went to this it was. It was almost all factual at that point, and but there's this boring part where I moved here and then I moved back there, and I, it was yeah. like that. I, I'm thinking that's confusing and it doesn't add anything. And you know, all right, I'm getting rid of that part. And then as I got rid of stuff and and cheated on other stuff to to give it the emotional impact that it had in real life, but you know, a description of what happened was not necessarily going to transmit that to a reader. I mean, that's how it turned into a novel. And even the Three Rooms Press folks who who uh, published it um, said, hey, why don't you make it a, a memoir? And I'm like, because it's not a memoir. I don't want it to be a memoir. And, uh, and I also think that, you know, and I, and I said this to them, I said, people, people are not so dumb. They understand that Okay, roughly this story is true, and so, in fact, they take it as true. People, you know, I think general readers or maybe especially rock fan readers are—they're not sitting there, you know, working out like, oh, this is, you know, this is autofiction and it's not nonfiction, and you know, they're not doing literary theory. Right. They're just like, oh, okay, well, this is more or less true. So, in keeping with this factual versus true idea, and in an effort to suss out info about your own upbringing, I'm going to go through some things that happened in the novel during Thomas's childhood and teenage years, and you can tell me if it's fact or fiction. So his background, I know that you both are scions of a a money, Southern Belle, but what about the rest of Thomas's family? His parents were married once before. The father has two older children, so Thomas has some step siblings, and then he has a younger brother too. Was that the situation in your family? Damn, I said all that. Yes, it <laughs> was the situation. Okay. In my family. Well, now this brings me to the the sad question. Thomas's older half brother Sandy died of cancer, and you're nodding your head, yeah. so I gather that that actually happened as well. Yes, yes, he did, and he he really was the original rock and roll guy. Mm. Uh, he was about 11 years older than me. And, um, and he died at 39. Oh my goodness. Which, which was, you know, and he, he was sick for like 10 years. So it was just ridiculous. And he, and he was, but he was this complete wild man. He'd been in a hot rod gang. I mean, he'd been in a gang where I went under, it's, I think it's in the book. The guns. <laughs> the guns. I went under his bed. You know, I was just, when he arrived to live with us, because my father finally got custody of him because the mother had lots of pr- problems, mostly with alcohol. And um, anyways, when he came to live with us, it was like, you know, I, whatever, I, you know, I was seven years old or something. And, and he was like 16 when he came to live with us. And, and it, 
and he was just, you know, he had greasy, long, kind of greasy hair. This is, you know, oh, God, it was like 1959 or something. And he had, you know, sideburns, and he was... And, and one day I went in his room, he, lit, he, he had the basement room in our house, and I, was, I would always go sneaking around in his room when he wasn't there because, you know, it was fascinating. And uh, I idolized him, and I went under his bed, and I'm like digging around under his bed, and I found, you know, three, a machine gun, God. an automatic <laughs> pistol, and something like a shotgun or something. Anyways, and I couldn't lift up the other weapons, so I brought the um, the automatic pistol up to the to the kitchen where my mother was and said, "Look what I found under his name was not Sandy. His name was Rusty, but I found under Rusty's bed." And she's like screaming, you know, <laughs> which. You would do if somebody brought a forty-five automatic into the, uh, you know, a seven-year-old kid yes. is pointing a forty-five at you. Although I'm sure I knew not to point it because I'd seen a million cowboy and, <laughs> and war movies by that time. So yes, he was, he, and and then he was a, you know, he had a crazy hot rod, and he was in a gang, and um, and he had a, a couple of really bad car wrecks. And he was the guy who, um, you know, my mother prevailed upon him at some point. She was going out and said, can you take the, the kids to um, take them to the drive-in? And, and, uh, and he was really pissed about this. You know, he, he was, of course. He was very, he, he became a much more mellow person, but he was just a really chip on his shoulder, tough kid who was raised by himself pretty much in New York City. And uh, so when, when he 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 eventually was coerced into driving us to the taking us to the drive-in, and he's driving in his crazy car. We're in the back seat, and you're, you know, in those days there was no there was no seat. Nobody used sure. seats. So me and my little brother are just like sliding back <laughs> and forth in the car because he's fishtailing down the street, and and he's just a, a complete maniac. And what's coming out of the dashboard of the car? is um elvis presley uh singing hound dog you ain't nothing but a hound dog Dog, if you go back, if you listen to it now, it's like that oh, it doesn't seem too wild. But in at this point, when the when the record just came out, it was it was crazy. It was really wild. Yeah, compared to the pop music of its time, and uh, and I was just like, oh my god! And he's got that volume all the <laughs> way up. I was I was so terrified by this experience, but. Uh, eventually, and I tell this story in, in Lava, I was in, I, I went to a Catholic school and, uh, and, and was always getting in, in trouble. And, uh, and so I, I started out hating Elvis in that car. And then somehow I, I thought I, I fell in love with Elvis. And I, did, and so we were doing, singing our hymns in class, in our music class at 
Catholic school one day, and I started singing like Elvis, <laughs> you know, and, and doing that. And the and the nun called home to my mother and said said uh, not that I was a bad boy, but that which was what what the calls I usually got, but uh, that I was uh, that she thought I had perfect pitch. She didn't know I was singing like Elvis, so somehow that communicated to her <laughs> perfect pitch. I didn't have perfect pitch, but uh, but uh, so he, this brother that was so influential yeah. on me, um, and he was just, you know, he became a pilot. And he, he was in the Navy, right? He went. He got well. Eventually, he got the thing that young teenagers used to get in those days was, you know, when they. I guess after they found out about all the weapons, they offered, the judge said, all right, I can put you in jail or you can go to the service. And so he picked the Navy and went to the Navy. And, and over four years, really, they somehow they kicked the shit out of him <laughs> enough that he, his, he, they got rid of the chip on his shoulder and he became just the sweetest guy. Mm. He's a, he's a true character. And he, to me, he was just like, the the quintessential rocker. So a good person to have in your family if you're interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I had one in mind. My siblings are yeah. all older than I. So he reminded yeah. me a lot of my older brother. Yeah. And his babysitting stints were a little scary, too. Yeah. So I could relate. Yeah. <laughs> Big brothers, good times. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's another one. Thomas goes to summer camp in Maine and yeah, yeah. like a two month stint. So I've got two words for you. Scratch inspection. Yes. <laughs> how could I, how could I invent Ew. scratch inspection? And that's what they called it. And, but there was, it was all, except for one guy, it was all young counselors, it was an all boys camp. And it was kind of hooked up with this Catholic school that we went to. I mean, a lot of those guys were, we're here. We're at the camp. The teachers were, you know, various administrators or whatever. Yes, but there was all young counselors except for this one dude, and uh, and I got him like maybe my first year there, and I guess the administration, you know, back in maybe back in the 1930s or something, it said, "Oh, we want you to do a scratch inspections." So where. He would, the counselor was, was instructed to examine the naked boys. And <laughs> so it had an, yeah. what an opportunity for a certain <laughs> segment of the population. And, uh -huh. uh, and so uh, this guy, uh, but, but none of the other, none of the young counselors did it. This guy, but this old guy, I mean, he was, he was old. I'm sure he's younger than I am, but he was, but he was white haired. He was old enough. He was 50, yeah. or 60. Uh, and he insisted on doing scratch inspection every morning. And he took that shit seriously too. Yeah, and you'd stand, you'd get naked and stand in front of him, and then he'd, you know, tell you spin around. And I say in there, you had to spread your butt cheeks. Um, <laughs> but I think that was true too. I think that was let, let's say that was factual. But you know, okay. And but you're you're you know whatever we were, eleven years old, and you're like whatever this is just you know you're you're used to grown-ups being authorities and you you know you gotta do it and it didn't it didn't like i mean it was like whoa this is the, the first couple times that happens you think this is a little weird but 
but uh, you didn't know why it was weird. And then you just got used to it. This is what we do. And, and uh, <laughs> yes. so scratch inspection was real. Yeah. It, it must've registered weird enough because you remembered it and put it in this book. Yeah. Yeah. So there had to have been something in the back of your mind that thought, okay, this is really screwed up. Well, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining. And they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joe Spivey. He developed poison ivy. You remember Leonard Skinner. Speaking of other kind of interesting things that happened at camp, Thomas's camp friend Wally Taggart <laughs> has a special talent. Did this actually, did you actually know a kid at camp who had this talent? Absolutely, <laughs> I did. And, and this kid, this kid, and I, I say it in the book, and the, the most outrageous stories in, in Loudmouth are the most factual, uh, I think. I suspected and, as much. And so this guy, this guy had, um, <laughs> he, I wrote about it. I thought, I, I think, I think it's an hilarious chapter. Mm-hmm. But he talked, he had the world record. He was, he told us all this shit about himself and he was quite open about all his issues. I mean, and he had some physical issues, but he, because he was the, he had the world's record for dying as a baby. He had, uh, he had died and they brought him back to life. And, uh, and he had a cleft palate and, and he had really bad eyesight. And, uh, but he was like athletic guy. So it, it wasn't holding him back that much. But one of the things he was, was he was double jointed in, you know, it was part of this, the cleft palate thing, I guess it was. So he was just double jointed every which way. And he could bend over and put his penis in his mouth, which, which, <laughs> like, well, it, that's a dream come true, you know? <laughs> oh, my uh, God. Nobody else has to do it, right? And, uh, you, <laughs> when I read and, that uh, part, I, I cried. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> yeah. And then one of the guys in our tent, there, I think we had five guys in our tent. And uh, said, um, okay, you know, we could make some money with this. And, um, you know, and he got the guy. I won't even get close to his name, uh, but he got the guy because he had a really distinctive name. If I said it, it would be, he, so I, 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 I fear that someday he'll, he'll sue me for telling. We'll just story. call him Wally. It's good. <laughs> um, and so this other guy convinced him to, to give, uh, you know, autoerotic blowjob shows, um, you know, where, where we would charge people, I think it was a quarter and campers, <laughs> campers would eventually would literally line up outside and this guy would do it. And you know, half the time he would get too shy to do it. He wasn't a shy guy, but he would get like, this is weird. And eventually the line got so long outside our tent that the authorities in the camp <laughs> were like, what is going on there? Busted. So they came and they called my, my, again, my friend, Kevin, who I just saw was born on the same day. We went to the Beatles mm. together, father's Irish mommy, but he and I were in the tent together and the head of the camp who we, we knew from Catholic school, he, he called us 
said, hey, can you guys come to my office today and uh, talk to me about something? And I'm thinking, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. And so after some small talk, he says, um, did uh, this person, and he gave the name, masturbate for money? And, and I'm like, masturbate? What is masturbate? <laughs> you know, I had, I had not... A, clue what masturbate was and um and so but kevin was like mr worldly uh grew, born and raised in new york and he said yes yes he did you know and you know also good catholic boy couldn't lie and then oh, okay thanks thanks boys and we left and i said to kevin after we were walking away i said the fuck is masturbate <laughs> I said, is that like a blowjob? Giving yourself a blowjob? Oh, wow. And uh, so that is also factual. In the book, being in a band doesn't doesn't pan out, and Thomas decides, well, what's what's the next best thing? I'll be a rock journalist. Is that that kind of what happened to you? That is what happened to me. All right. So I guess the whole damn thing is factual. You're just <laughs> you're just exposing me as a as a fraud. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm as sorry. a loudmouth blowhard. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean. I uh, I was playing in bands. I dropped out of co- college I, 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 and, and and never went back because I was playing in bands. And then I got tired of of you know uh, typical the the drummer would quit just when you got the band got kind of tight and good. Yeah. The drummer would quit or the guitar player or whatever. And there was you know and you're you're living in close quarters and everybody's broke. So it, it was also well, could get a little tense. And, um, so after the, you know, and, and this guy, uh, uh, from Sam Andrews, from Sam Andrew, uh, from, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company, he came down and played with, uh, uh kind of pickup band I was playing with. And, and he, and then he asked me the next day, he said, would I, would I come be the singer in his new band? So I've styled this as as the, that I was the replacement for Janis Joplin, but in, you know in his life <laughs> yeah. I, I would have been. But I was I was a good I wasn't a great uh, technical singer, but I was a um, I was just a, a wild man on, on stage, you know. So I, I think I I could gener- I knew how to generate excitement, and it, you know you get drunk and get in front of a microphone. <laughs> And, uh, but anyways, um, this really floored me because this happens in the book and then you turned him down. You turned him down. Yes, I did turn him down. And it was like my dream to be a rock star. And, and, but I had been so jaded by all, I had been playing in bands since I was 12 years old. And by this time I was like 19 or something, 20, maybe even. And I, uh, and I'm like, Oh, fucking bands. And I had made plans to go to California and uh, where, which 
I had first visited with my older rockin' brother. We had gone out there and had a really wonderful time in the Bay Area, San Francisco, where where I live now. And so I was astonished. Um, maybe I was scared I couldn't cut it, but but uh, I turned Sam Andrew down. And, and I was also a big fan of the, the Big Brother and the Holding Company band, which there were a lot of kind of serious music types who, who said, all oh, those guys are just, you know, they, they, they're technically shitty. And that's, ex- I love the rough edges of that band. And yeah. I, and I, I think they were way better than the uh, session men that Janice hooked up with, you know, the full tilt boogie band. I, I thought, although she brought over Sam, um, but anyway, so, uh, yeah. And I, and I thought, okay, what am I, I don't, I got sick of, I got sick of the whole thing of bands. I didn't really, at the time I didn't write my own songs or I didn't like my own songs that I wrote and I didn't play, I played guitar just enough to, I just, I couldn't do a solo act. Uh, and so I thought, well, you know, what can I do? And I thought, well, they say, write what you know which I now know is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> so, so again, some, you know, the common wisdom misleading yes. young people. Um, but so, and, and I thought, well, what I know about music, I thought I knew about music. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll go out to San Francisco and I'll get a job. You know, Rolling Stone was still out there at the time out here. And, yes. um, and uh, and I didn't know how I was going to do this. I didn't have any connections. And uh, but by the wildest serendipity, I made a connection. We are at that point in the program where we were about to dive into the cream years, which were pretty wild and crazy by anyone's estimation. So I think we need to get a little wild and crazy here on Rock is Lit. So let's kick off this segment with a good old-fashioned drinking game. So I'll throw some lyrics at you from five different songs. And if you can name the correct song that goes with the lyric, that's great. If you can't, you got to Lester Bangs that shot. And I think I just <laughs> coined a phrase. <laughs> so what, what's your poison? What have you got on you? Well, I'm just drinking beer. I happen to have found this uh, porter. Black Butte Porter from Oregon. It's the best. I'm, I'm a big Guinness fan, but you, we don't get r- r- real Guinness in this country. So I discovered these guys. They, they, they're they wonderful. I know nice. they're not showing video, but there it is. Black Butte Porter. So. And that and, will and do. I've been drinking it while we've been talking. So. Well, I've been drinking wine, too. So. <laughs> but I have, so, I have a backup if I need to. I do, too. I sure hope the first question is, about Bobby Rydell's Forget Him, or You Don't Sorry. Know. Sorry. Uh, and I hope it's not Kansas or Sticks or one of those <laughs> bands. Because I don't. Um, ooh, no. <laughs> no, I promise you, it's none of that. Well, I have great anxiety about this part of the program, so fire away. This is a good thing because, you know, it's a win-win. If, if you get it, hey, rah-rah. If you don't, you get to drink. And to show you I've got a heart, I'll chug a lug with you if you miss one. So, you ready? All right, here's the first one. I got no friends because they read the papers. They can't be seen with me, and I'm feeling real shot down, and I'm getting mean. I have no idea. Think Detroit. Think Detroit. Well, uh, 
it's not Mitch Ryder or, uh, oh, uh, it's not MC5, is it? I got no friends because read the papers. Hmm. Okay. It's Alice Cooper, no more Mr. Oh. Mr. Nice Guy. But Chug-a-Lug? Yeah. I'm there. All right. I'm with you. I love it. My drinking buddy for the night. Number two. And right now, right now, right now, it's time to kick out the jams, motherfuckers. Well, that's the MC5. You got yeah. it. That's right. Kick Mr. out the jams. Mr. Rob Tyner, lead singer. And um, I remember once with, with Lester Banks, we went to Rob Tyner's house. And Rob Tyner, kick out the jams, motherfucker. And we sat at his kitchen table and, and with him and his wife, and, and, and they served us hot tea. You know. Oh, really? Yeah, it was very, and it wasn't pot tea huh. or LSD tea. Just hot tea. It was just, and they had a little, you know, nice, modest house. And they were, they were so normal and, uh, you know, not MC5 y. Okay, so he saves that for the stage. Yeah. yeah. Ready for the next one? Ready as I'll ever be. The boy looked at Johnny. Oh, Johnny that's wanted Patty. to run, but there you go. That's Patty Smith. All right, who... love that song. We've <laughs> love Patty. I, yeah, I love Patty. Patty, uh, that first record which had that on it, um, was just that's her best record. We've known. We actually have known her. My wife knew her even longer than I do, but we've both known her for like forty years. And wow. I, I remember going to. We were also friends with Alan Lanier, who was in the Blue Oyster Cult and was her, her uh, boyfriend. Going to their apartment at One Fifth, was it One Fifth Avenue? Yeah, it was down right by Washington Square. It's a really great apartment. Mm. And we would go, to, we would get, you know, I'd get, I'd get drunk with Alan and we'd go to the house. And I remember one day we're, we're all sitting on the bed drinking and, and it was the Coke day. So uh, a lot of uh, cocaine was going around. And, and what's his name? Um, Jim uh, Bass, Jim Carroll came over and uh, and he just the minute he got in the door he sat at the chair by the door and just hoovered up a whole bunch of cocaine. Lordy. He was such a junkie uh, for, for everything. Um, but anyways, and Patty got all mad at us because you know she came home hoping to relax. I guess <laughs> <And> <laughs> not going to happen. A bunch of drunk high people in, in the apartment. So, <laughs> but but Patty, we've become even closer friends over the last few years because our we were both uh, great friends with Sandy Perlman, who was the manager of Blue Oyster Cult yeah. and lyricist, and he also um, paid for Patty's first demo. Wow. So, and when did he pass away? He passed away about five or six years ago, and, and he and my wife and I became his legal guardian. I forget what the term of art was, but um, and and Patty, you know, came out, and so we all. Mm. Anyway, we became even tighter over that yeah. period. All right, we got two more songs to go. Okay. Here's here's one. Honey, got no money. I'm all sixes and sevens and nines. Say now, baby, I'm the rank outsider. You can be my partner in crime. Yeah, well, that's the Stones. Jagger Yay! Yes, I, yes. I knew when you told me that that's your granddaughter. Dice. Yeah. That's Tumbling Dice. I was listening to it today. Right, from yeah, Exile on Main Street. So when you told me earlier that your granddaughter was listening to that, I thought, well, he's going to get that one then for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, one more. So messed up. 
I want you here in my room. I want you here. Now we're going to be face to face. And now I'll lay right down in my favorite place. Yeah. Iggy, Iggy stewed. She was. There you the go. Dog. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to be your dog. All right. Well, yeah, that was great. That yeah. was great. Yeah. You only yeah. missed one. So, I I, you know, song. that's actually really sad that you only missed one because you only got to take one drink. So I think we should say cheers yeah. to, to that. Yeah. And- cheers to you. Sante. Mm-hmm. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So now that we're sufficiently lubed, or should I say Lester banged, onward ho. I guess the best way to segue into cream is to offer this quote from the novel. I never said I was cool. Nobody at cream was cool. Nobody backdoor or anyway was a rock star. Not even Lester in his unselfconsciously galoofing, self-consciously anti-cool way. Not then. It was the thing that was cool. So what was the thing? Well, the thing was, was cream magazine and, and you know, we were part it was a it was kind of an an organism that was made up of multiple cells and uh and uh, that was the thing you know it was Mm. the attitude and it was you know lester was uh definitely a dominant can there be a can there be a brain cell among those he was definitely you know (laughs) a, a leader of the cells within the within the organism but um yeah, that I, you know, I because it wasn't like a bunch of really cool people. Uh, I if you've ever seen a picture of Lester, if you ever knew him, Lester was just such a. This is this is the thing that people people think he was cool, and he he was definitely not cool. He was all he was a hick. So you know, he was such a goof. He could be so. He was so goofy. A lot of the time, you know, and hey, it's like, and he was, uh, anyways, he was, he, he was, yeah. And I was very close to him. I was very close. Yeah, to him. I gathered that, and and I think a lot of people, particularly of a certain age group, picture Lester, of course, as Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, because that that movie, I'm as yeah. famous, was such a, a hit, and that. That's the first time that a lot of people got any kind of a glimpse of Lester Bangs. How close was that to the real person? 
Well, I thought it was a good. I thought it was a good uh, physical, uh, you know, impersonation. I uh, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I I I did love him. I'm sorry he's gone. By the way, his son Cooper Hoffman in in that movie Licorice Pizza, the Th- Philip Thomas Anderson movie, is he's fantastic. Hey, that's his son in that movie. That's the, the lead guy that. is his son, and he's it, he's great. Oh my god! And so is I, the Heim uh, girl, the uh, the Heim sister. Yeah, yeah. She's great. So interesting. Speaking of rock and roll movies, yeah. But anyways, Philip Seymour Hoffman was yes. I, I thought it was a really good impersonation. Cameron, I know a little bit too. And he one time came to, came to Detroit with at the the band The Tubes on their like first tour, their kind of introductory tour of America, and um. We all went out with Cameron and the band and went to see the band. And Cameron had some bunch of quaaludes. And so he, I was shit-faced and he gave me, a, <laughs> I said, oh, well, give me one of them quaaludes. And, and he did. And then, um, and then 20 minutes later, I'm like, hey, man, that, that quaalude didn't work. Give me another oh, one. Oh, no. And he did. And uh, that was, has to be the highest I've ever been and probably the closest to death. But I Jeez. actually put moves on a dog that night thinking it was okay. a, a human. So Yeah. Oh, it was, it was a long night. That's pretty high. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the things in Loudmouth that really struck me with regard to Lester was this description of his work ethic. And it, it's it here's the description. It, it didn't matter how long he'd been out or awake, he'd come into the office, put on a record, pop some pills, and type like a maniac and sweat and type and sweat and type for hours until he had his his opus, which you would then edit. He wrote, I witnessed Lester on writing binges. That's how Lester wrote. It was also the way he drank and took drugs and fell in love and, for that matter, listened to music. So he really was just this man of, of great excess, I gather. Yeah, here's a story that I heard at Lester's, um, I guess his funeral or his memorial service. His nephew was there, but his nephew was close in age to Lester. And he was a really nice guy. I can't remember his name now. But he told a story about when Lester lived next door, I guess when he had moved out of his mother's house, he lived next door. And, and people don't tell the story enough, I don't think. I'm not sure it was even in his biography, but... Um, he lived next door to an empty house at some point, and he went in there. He used to go in there and write on the walls, and he wow. you know, eventually filled the whole house with handwritten screeds, you know, Dang. and he was probably doing, I think he was doing speed at the time, but it was like this vision of the whole interior of this abandoned house being covered in Lester's writing. You, you, you wish you had. You know, you wish you had cell phones to take pictures of that thing to preserve that writing because it would be interesting to have seen it. Um, so My that goodness. was Lester, you know, and he he really did. He could he could go, I don't know, forty eight hours or long, and he had really would just be sitting at the typewriter, you know, putting out a hellacious stench. But uh, <laughs> but I, you know, <laughs> but he and, and, and that's 
that's the way it was. And, and it was like, and with the, you know, I said it was like his drinking too. His drinking. I remember when he quit drinking, I'm, I'm using air quotes. He quit drinking and we went to this, this bar restaurant we used to go to all the time, Pasquale's in Detroit, in, in suburban Detroit. And um, Lester said, oh, I'm not drinking. I'll just have a glass of wine. And we, the place was known for having these giant vats of beer that they called bolos. And they were like, you had to use two hands. And we, that's what we just ordered bolos all night of beer and, and got just, we got drunk just almost every night, maybe every night. And Lester, I'm just having a glass, I'm just having a, a wine. And so Lester got the wine. And his, we got one glass of wine, then he got another glass of wine. And he wound up, you know, drinking as much wine as he ordinarily would drink a beer and being drunker than, than ever. Of you know. course, because so that was Lester when he quit drinking. content's higher. Yeah, much, much higher. So he, that was Lester when he quit drinking. Um, Lester, when he listened to music, he would listen to it, you know, he would listen to it loud and he would listen, you know. He used to come in and put on Lou Reed's metal machine music, which is just some form of feedback for, oh, I don't know, 60, 90 minutes. It was, to me, unbearable. But Lester uh, fed on that somehow. There was some organic madness that pushed him into ultimately killing himself with trash drugs. He was a worshiper of everything trash, you know. So even mm. even the drugs that killed him were just like street trash. And oh, uh, and uh, so yes, that was that was Lester. But he was a, he was an amazing writer. He would write. I remember this 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 thing he gave me that I you know it was like forty pages sixty pages it was something he had written it and it was so dispiriting to be a young writer Lesser was like three years older than me but I was a uh, and I was way less experienced when I got to Korean in fact I didn't go to Korean as a writer I was like the copy boy and uh, and less and seeing Lester turn out really funny stuff. In you know draft one, you know he he wasn't. Oh, I hate him. And, <laughs> That's awful. And he was also an insanely fast typist. You know, it was probably the I, I said this. It was probably the only thing he really studied in school. No, he, he studied literature too. Yeah, he was very well read. Um, so he was just you know it was like okay, this is impossible. It was so dispiriting for a uh, you know for a young writer. You write about the day that Lester died in Loudmouth. Yeah. So I hope I'm not overstepping and and asking if you would relay the details of that day. Yeah. Well, we, you know, I, uh, I got in an argument with Barry Kramer, who was the publisher of Cream. Of Cream. I kind of liked him. Barry and Lester and Barry just had amazing fights. So that was a famous mm. thing. But. I, I eventually got in this argument with him, in, in which, by the way, Barry Kramer was entirely correct because I, I went to New York just in the middle of the night one night from Cream, 
I had a girlfriend back in New York and, and, and she was uh, giving me some shit. So I went back there to try to straighten all that out and, um, and didn't tell, there was no cell phones and I didn't tell anybody I'd left, didn't tell anybody where I'd gone. And at this point I was like the managing editor and, Goodness. and I came back like, you know, a week later and Kramer didn't fire me, but he says, I'm, I'm not paying you for that week. And, and I'm like, well, motherfucker, you got to pay me for that week because blah, blah, blah. I was so such an ass. I was such an asshole. And uh, so I so I left cream at that point. I again, I left it. I that that night I just drove back to New York in my sixty five dollar car that that, uh, <laughs> that died. But the 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 moment I parked it in New York, it died. But anyways, um, and I was there. Uh, oh, I don't know. I guess I. I looked, I found, I eventually found after a month or two or three, and Lester, I, I should preface this by saying Lester was always talking about, you know, someday I'm going to New York, I'm getting out of this shithole, and you've seen the pictures of his Detroit Sucks t-shirt, and yes. he didn't, wasn't entirely joking about that, he loved and hated Detroit, so I was in New York a few months when I got, suddenly I got, I found this apartment through friend of a friend, and it was it was the cheapest. It was um, less than two hundred dollars, and it was a, uh, it was a half. It was on between Fourteenth and Fifteenth Streets on Sixth Avenue, half block from uh, the Greenwich Village. It was a fifth floor walk up. It was a dump. It was full of cockroaches and and rodents, and it was and and it didn't have hot water a lot of time. Although I didn't know all, all of its problems until um, I lived there. But and and so I took it, and then. The apartment next door, you know, within a couple months, maybe a month, I don't know, it wasn't long. The guy next door to me, I say in the in loudmouth that he died. He didn't die. I forget what happened. He moved away. So suddenly there was a matching apartment. There's only two apartments on a floor, and there was a matching apartment next door to me. And I thought, who can I tell about this fucking apartment? Because I've got the inside thing here i can go to the landlord and say and so i thought lester so i called lester up and i said dude you're always talking shit that you're gonna i'm gonna move to new york you know fuck this shit and i said <laughs> well i have next door to me the cheapest apartment in new york city it was a one bedroom too you know and i said you know and it's it's going to be gone in a in a minute if you want me to, I'll go down to the landlord and I give him some money. I don't know where I was getting the money, but uh, I'll give him some money. Ask him to keep it All for right. me, uh, unless you said do it. You know, in this phone call. So, so I was the one who got him to go to New York after after five years in Detroit. So, um, anyway, so Lester and I lived next door to each other. We were, we were very close in Detroit, and we became uh, we were just just we basically we never locked our doors. We would borrow shit from each other we just we were just hanging and eventually uh eventually lester's girlfriend moved out and that became a big problem because lester really reverted to his his most uh, uh you know his most dissolute ways and i had met a girl and she had moved in and, and i'm still living with her 47 years later and then lester and i got in a big fight because he took advantage of this open door system. I, I tell it in the book. 
we actually had a physical fight and and uh because and it was the guy um, Lex McNeil from Punk Magazine. No way! Yeah. That's who it was. That's who. That's who. Ah, that's who stole the that, beer. That's who stole the beer. And oh, I. Oh man! And that night before I went home, you know, we 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 stayed out till five or six in the morning every night, and we were going after hours clubs. We were. It was really outrageous, uh, <laughs> not healthy. Um, but um, and I was at like CBGBs or something, and Lex McNeil said. Hey man, I took your last beer, and uh, and I'm like, what? Yeah, Lester told me I could go get take a beer. So you had a six pack in there. I took the six pack, and I'm like, you motherfucker. And I was so when I got home, I opened their fridge, and sure enough, you know. And it by the way, at five thirty in the morning, you don't need any more beer. But um, <laughs> but I but so I freaked out, and I, I I there's a thing called a police lock, which is like a I, yes, a big iron thing, and I threw, I threw it at the wall, and it went through my kitchen wall into Lesser's kitchen, and, and then we get in that. In, what ensued was a giant um, fight, and so. But after that, we were never really. Um, we stopped being close, and you know, even though Lesser's like, "Hey, let's shake and be friends," and blah blah blah, and we did. But I'm like, nah, you know, and he, he, Lester, is he, he, he often alienated his friends by doing, he had done other stuff to me. I mean, the beer thing was just stupid, but he had done other stuff to me. And it was like, ouch, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but we live right next door to each other and we would hear Lester, um, walking up the stairs. And when I say walking, I mean, he, it was like, it sounded like he was falling, but somehow he wasn't actually falling. He had an odd gait, and but he was falling up the stairs, doing his falling. And so we would hear when Lester came home, you know, we hear bop, bop, boom, bop, bop, boom, boom. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he would go and then slam his door because he was high or something, didn't know it. And so he came home one night, and Ronnie and I registered that Lester had come home. You know, you just kind of ticked it off in your head. And at this point, Lester had gotten really, well, he he was, he had cleaned up, but we didn't know that because he had really hit bottom at some point in the previous six months. And um, so he came in and then about, oh, like less than 10 minutes later, uh, there's a knock at my door and it's the landlord. I open it up and it's the landlord. The landlord was a young guy. He had inherited this this building from his Italian immigrant father and they had, they, they lived this weird life, the whole family in this little apartment downstairs. Mm. And Roberto was there and, and Roberto says, uh, Robert, there's something, there's something wrong with Lester. And I'm like, okay. And I, so I went over there and, uh, you know, walked the 10 feet. Um, and Lester was on his couch, you know, on his back. And his eyes were open, and uh, and I'm like, Lester, what's up? You know, or, and you know he doesn't respond, and I realize, oh shit. And so I I tried to, uh, you know, I picked up his hand, and his hand was warm, and it was just, you know, he wasn't he if he would, it had just happened. It had just happened. Yeah. We had heard him falling up the stairs. It was such a, you know, and it was just one of those things. You know, I, 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 a lot of people I know have died over the years, but um, it was, it's just, 
it is always extraordinary when somebody dies, when they're here one minute and they're gone the next. Sure. And, and, and what was he, like 34? He was young. Oh, yeah, he was. Oh, he was 33, I guess. Yeah. So I, I was like 29, I think, or 28. So I forget. Um, yeah, I think he was 33. You know, everybody dies at Jesus's age or Brian Jones's age. <laughs> you, you, you take your pick. It's 27 or Jesus's age, one or right. the other. Right. So um, <laughs> anyways, and he was uh, and he was dead. And I'm trying. Well, I thought maybe I can revive him. And so I'm using my loud mouth. Yelling, Lester, 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 get, you know, wake up and shaking him and all this stuff. And somebody called, um, called the cops and, and, and the paramedic showed up pretty fast. Wow, there's so many weird things. And this, uh, paramedics came in and they checked him out and they, and they didn't bring out a defibrillator, which I'm like, or, or they did. I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm like, dude, you, this is, you gotta, you gotta shock him or something, you know. I'm, I'm saying to the paramedic, and I'm just going, yeah, I was going on and on as I am wont to do, as you may have noticed. I don't, I mean, is, is it 10 p.m. yet? Uh, but <laughs> um, anyways, the, the 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 as as I I use the incident in loudmouth, and the, the paramedic stood up and said, "You you know, he's fucking brain dead, and you don't want." You, He's gone. It's too late. You know, you, yeah. he, he would be brain dead. He says, you know what brain dead is? And he's it, we're all in my face, this guy. And it was like, you know, it was just hard to understand because he had been alive moments earlier. And uh, sure. anyway, so we, so the paramedics left and the, and the cops didn't showed up to kind of, I don't know, they sent a, they sent a pair of cops. One of the cops left, and the other cop was there just to, I guess, keep watch the body, make sure there was no foul play, and somebody hides clues or I, I don't know what's what's going mm. on. But I remember the cop. So I'm sitting there. I was just in shock, but I thought I better stay here myself just to make sure, you know. And I'm tr- calling around. They're saying they got to do an autopsy, and I'm calling around uh, trying to find. I was just trying to find well, how can we mitigate this yeah. i i was upset about him get, having to have an autopsy you know just it was hard to believe he was dead and and this cop so this cop were hanging around you know 15 minutes or something just me and this cop cop was maybe the late 30s black guy and he's like uh what was he says what was this guy was this guy a musician and i'm like well no you're, you know sometimes but he really was a writer about music wrote wrote about music and and this guy had been going through all the shelves of records and and the records were on the floor too the records were everywhere and and he said hey uh you think it would be cool if i kept this record and i i said in loudmouth that it was um that it was albert eiler but it was i, I i'm not sure it was albert eiler but it was somebody a really cool jazz he says i'm a big jazz buff
it was like so weird that within 45 minutes of of him being alive he his stuff was now being picked over by by yeah. people and, and and then i thought about it and i thought god i said you know this shit is gonna i mean i said it in loudmouth i said this shit is going to be picked over by by everybody soon and this hipster co- cop um i thought lester would like that that this guy got one of his cool this cool hipster cop got the cool jazz record so i i said yeah sure keep it you know but it was it really did emphasize to me and i said it in loud mouth i i picked that up was that it was like damn when you're dead you're dead and you got no say so in, in you know in anything yeah. and uh you know so that that was brought it home in a weird way well, it was a really powerful scene that and when you're trying to get the paramedics to resuscitate him that whole section is is really powerful and poignant let's backtrack a bit and return to your cream days when you were spending a lot of time interacting with rock stars there's some great examples in loudmouth and i'd like for you to elaborate on some of them so i'm going to throw out a few names here and you just take it away David Bowie and Iggy Pop. David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Well, the one, the first time, I guess it was the first time. I I don't know if it was the only time. I I never interviewed Iggy Pop, but I was scheduled to interview David Bowie. And it was when he was playing like, you know, um, Cobo Hall or something in downtown Detroit. And so they, it was strange. They took me up to his room. And I realized now maybe it wasn't his room, but but it, it was it was his room. Said so, you know wait for him here, and I'm sitting. It was kind of a dark room. They didn't have any not much, well not enough lights on. Let's say my eyesight was good in those days, and I'm sitting there and I'm realizing, oh shit, there's a guy asleep on the on the other bed <laughs> over there, and I'm looking, and it, of course it was Iggy Pop. You know this is when Iggy was in Bowie's orbit. And, uh, so mm-hmm. I mean that's it. We didn't talk or anything. He just kept sleeping, and so I'm I'm sitting there just looking at Iggy Pop sleeping, and uh, <laughs> and I, I Bowie I think didn't show up for a long time. My favorite is Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood. Yeah, that involves a white room with white shag yeah. carpet. Yeah, that was that was that Woody Allen moment. I, I I I remember I said to my wife I said look. As she knows, it's a true story. I said, but it's like it's like when Woody Allen blew in 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 that in that movie. <laughs> I forget which one it was. The Hollywood where he's in Hollywood and he he blows away the coke. I, by this time, I'd moved back to New York, but I'd made up with Cream, so I was doing freelance writing for Cream, and I was and uh, Ron Wood had put together a tour called the New a touring group called the New Barbarians, and and Keith had decided to play in it. And all Ian McCloggan and the, the, who was in the faces and a whole bunch of the faces and stones people and and others, I suppose. But so I was supposed to interview Ronnie Wood and who I had met, who he didn't he didn't remember. We drove around downtown Detroit one time. Well, we went to see him when he was playing on the faces, and um, we were driving in my friend Eric's van, which was just this thing full of beer cans and stuff. And 
where you sat on the floor <laughs> in the back, you know? And so we went to the backstage area of the faces and I saw Ronnie Wood and I said, Hey, you know, Woody, come with us, uh, come with us in the van. And Ron Wood, one of the nicest guys and, and came and just got in the van with us and said, yeah, okay. And wow. he said, well, where were you going? Cause he was with a bunch of people. He said, well, we were going to Bobby Womack's house and here's the address. And so we all went to Bobby Womack's house, and uh, but but first Ron Wood was drinking beer on the floor of the van. Anyway, so Ron Ronnie Wood, I was supposed to interview uh, Ronnie in this new Barbarians tour, and this was in New York, and we got to we got to I, I met him at his hotel room, and then we all got in like this wagon train of limos, and we went out to a private airport in New Jersey and took a private jet and you know when you uh, when you say private jet it evokes small what used to be lear jets or something yeah this was like uh like a 727 which good lord was a pretty big plane and it was all outfitted in the in the plane as a the front half of the pl- of the plane was like a bar and it had a it had it looked like a British pub and it had a British, <laughs> it had a British bartender behind the bar. And, and he was like this impeccable guy. You order a drink and then you finish your drink. And the next time you come within his, within range, he has a new one made for you. Exactly what you had. Before. Anyways. So it's fun. So we went down to Washington DC from New York and, and went to the show. And And it was it was such a rock star experience because the you know the limos had taken us out onto the tarmac right next to the plane, and then the limos picked us up on the tarmac in Washington and drove us down into the bowels of the auditorium. God, you really got the star treatment there. Yeah, and then we all went in and watched the band, and the band did a couple of encores and came right off stage and back into the limos, back to the tarmac, back to New York. And I I, I changed some of the facts on this thing. Uh, on that in the book but um so it was fantastic so i was supposed to interview ronnie and ronnie said and ronnie said a couple of times listen we'll we're gonna we'll get to it we'll get to it i promise you i'm not gonna screw you over or whatever he said um just the nicest guys but so i was sitting there in the room and with with ronnie and ian mcclogan uh and somebody else and they're they're all fun loving guys and in walks Keith with his bottle of Jack Daniels. And Keith was, and, and sits, sits opposite me, you know, in this little living room of this hotel suite. And Keith was like, um, um, Mike Myers used to do an impression of Keith on uh, Saturday Night Live. And, and he always had him be where you couldn't understand him. Well, that was no exaggeration. Oh, he wow. starts talking and it was like, wah, 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 and I was like, and he was laughing though. He was having a good time. <laughs> of course he was. And, and at one point, some, the, uh, somebody knocked at the door and Ron Wood went over to the, answer the door and 
And then when Keith saw who it was, he started into um, this uh, like an animal, like some kind of crazy animal sounds. And uh, and then and Ronnie closed the door and, and he told me, yeah, Keith, Keith is uh, he's he's mad at her for something. <laughs> and it was some other journalist and he and she had somehow betrayed him. But his the noises that came out of him <laughs> first, you can't understand him. And then he's making these wounded animal noises. But he was so game and just hung out. And, you know, I don't know what he was talking about or what we were talking about. <laughs> And, and so, so time went on, and Ronnie would periodically say, "We're going to do this. We're going to we're going to get this interview done." And so I said, "Well, let me." You know, I had told, I guess I had told my girlfriend, who would later be my wife, I said, "I'd I'd be home." I told her I'd be home by three in the morning or something. So I'm like, oh, "Shit, I better tell her that you know this is going on." And uh, so I said to Ronnie, "I said, could I, could I borrow the phone because we didn't have cell phones in those days." So he says, "Oh yeah," and he shows me to the to the bedroom, and it's an all it's all shag rug, and it's white bed and a and a white uh, bedside table, and you know it's very uh, that way. And uh, and so I picked up the the hand the phone, the old landline phone, and I moved it to moved it towards me and dialed, and then uh, Ronnie. Now I say it loud enough; it was Ronnie, but I, I actually think it was one of his. Factota, factotums, and uh, came came in the room, and it turns out he says, "Oh, excuse me, I, I I'm I'm like on the phone, and excuse me, and it turns out I have not seen a pile of white powder that was on the bedside <laughs> stand, and I've shoveled it onto the white shag carpet. Oh dear! And I'm Oops. like, I'm like, oh, dude, <laughs> I'm just so." You know, I feel so stupid and such, like such a such a square and and oh no no don't worry about it don't worry about it Ronnie was really cool and the, well that was big Evan and the road manager was cool and everybody was cool and uh, and then we eventually did the interview and uh, yes that was <laughs> that was a, quite an experience okay Kiss Kiss you yeah. did a book on Kiss I did. And there's this great story in the book about you being at this event and you're promoting the book and, and you're not happy about it. And Joe Strummer shows up oh. and, it's like, and Mick oh. Jones too. Yeah. I wrote this book about Kiss. Now, now, now I run into Kiss fans still today and I, I go on podcasts with the Kiss fans and they're all like, I said, oh man, I was embarrassed. I thought they were a stupid band and they're like, what? You thought it was a stupid band, and you know this is their Beatles. But I was old enough to know better, and and it, but they were one of the first bands I wrote about it on their first tour of the U.S. I had, I had interviewed them the day Paul Stanley got his um, shoulder tattoo, the uh, rose that he has on his shoulder, in, in San mm. Francisco. Anyways, so uh, I I I guess I interviewed him a few more times. So I had all this material. And uh, I was at a, um, <laughs> I was at an Ozzy Osbourne press, con uh, um, you know, yes. party, release party or something. And Ozzy himself, who was supposed to be promoting his, I think it was his first solo record, I don't know. And he was actually asleep on a chair in the Shocking. corner. Uh, and, and I remember the publicist saying, 
you want to meet Ozzy? Yes. And they basically had to pick his hand up and put it in my hand okay. to shake hands. And But I ran into this guy, Richard Robinson, who was a producer. He produced Lou Reed's first solo album. He was such an interesting guy. And he wrote for Cream and he wrote about he wrote about electronics and mm. just a bunch of other people. But, but And a really nice guy. He's married to Lisa Robinson. Oh, really? The, the forever rock critic. She's still going, I think. I mean, I know yeah, she's still yeah. alive, but I think she's still doing it. And um, and he said to me, "Hey, I got I had so I had started writing about Kiss, and I I would I stopped doing I didn't I had a bunch of interviews in the background, but I but I I discovered when I was freelance writing in New York that the one thing you could sell was an article about Kiss. So I would write a story in this magazine this week." about how Kiss was the greatest thing ever. You know, my, my tongue firmly. In <laughs> so and, to speak. Which, was, it, which it was, <laughs> yes. Which it was with yeah. the book, too. And then I would write in another magazine, uh, I would write, Kiss is the worst thing ever, blah, blah, blah. So I, w- I would um, oscillate between these <laughs> two extremes, which I thought, you know, if you're a real rock fan and you're reading all these magazines, that's going to be mystifying. And but the the really cool people will realize it's funny, and I'm being and I'm being funny, and uh, and there was some one guy who reviewed my book and said this book is hilarious and blah blah blah. <laughs> Anyways, the book came out, and it's it, Richard Robinson said, "Hey, there's a guy looking for a book about Kiss," and I thought of you and a publisher, and so I went to the publisher, and indeed they were, and and you know they gave me an advance, and I got it. I did it. A book deal, you know, when I was like 23 years old. I was really torn, you know, because I had aspirations to be some sort of literary person. I did, and I thought, oh, man, this this is going to fuck me over. I'm, I'm, they're never going to let me in the literary club as <laughs> having written a kiss book. Uh, so I, I was I was torn, but I was also broke and, you know, and it was like a three thousand dollar advance. And it was like that was a lot of money to me in those days. And, and we also sold overseas rights. Uh, for way more than that, it was like, whoa, wow. what the fuck? So that we actually, and, and then when the book came out, uh, eventually it sold a ton. And, 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 you know, we lived on it for three years, my wife and I. But but so early on, the, the, I, there was a, a thing called, a, it was the first annual rock and roll flea market or something. And it was all collector shit and you know, and goofy belt buckles and, and all this stuff. And, and it seemed like a good idea to send me down there with a couple boxes of books. So the publisher sent me down there with a couple of boxes of books. And I, I really was embarrassed to be associated with my own book. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting there and, and, and I describe it in the book where I, I, I kind of did erect a, a, a a barrier, a duck blind of kiss books in front of me, so I wouldn't have to talk to anybody or see anybody, and uh, on my card table, and um, and so, oh, and I had met um, 
oh, I don't know, six months earlier, I, we, we talked about Sandy Perlman, the Blue Oyster Cult guy who was also uh, produced the first Clash album, uh, Give Him Enough Rope, the first U.S. Clash album. And, and, and we had, oh, we had helped him find a piano player, which is a whole other story. And so we had gone to the studio and, uh, for the recording of the one song. Julie's been working on the drug squad. And, um, and so, uh, so I knew them a, a little bit. And so I'm sitting there behind my duck blind and he, I, I, there's somebody fingering a kiss book at the end of the table. And I look up and it's Joe Stromer. Mm. And um, I'm so, I, I can't, yeah, I, I, it was, I, I think it was stupid now, but I was so embarrassed. And, you know, they were the, avatars of punk and kiss was just kind of yeah. the, the the avatars of commercial schlock and <laughs> and then I, another person's picking up the book and it's mick jones and i'm like oh fuck me what the fuck uh and so <laughs> i said to uh i said to joe i said well you know it's kind of a, it's kind of a joke doing this book was kind of a joke and, and he said to me something like i have it in the in the book that he said to me i'll read it i have the book here you say yeah well kind of a joke you know and as if to confirm he shrugged and said we've all got to make a living later on you write we strummer had said all he'd appended i had to write shitty kiss books and he had to suck up to the suits at Athena, same prison, different cells. So he got it. He got what you were doing. And he wasn't being judgmental. Right. At, at Athena was CBS. I, I don't know why I changed the names of the record companies. But anyways, yes. When, when, when Joe said to me, you know, we've all got to make a living. I thought, well, first of all, he's agreeing with me that the book is shitty. And so, <laughs> you know, you really, you, I tortured this in my head. And, and I thought, and he's a is he condescending to me? I think he's condescending to me too. And so I went through a lot of uh, psychological gyrations over that statement, which was, I think meant it was meant to be kind. And Joe, just drummer was, yeah. just drummer was a, was a nice guy. So anyways, but it was just like, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> they had to show up when I'm here with my kiss book. So I have to ask, cause this is, I keep thinking, who is he talking about? Who is your childhood friend who married Liza Minnelli? Is it is it Mark Giro or Giro, however yeah, you pronounce it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it is. That's I was looking at all her husbands going, that can't be that person. Yeah. Can't be that person. He was her only straight husband. Um there's that. Um, but uh yes, he did. And then that was that was a clown show, I'm telling you. Uh, so you open the door and there's Gene Simmons at her party. That's right. That's right. Right. Uh, right. I would. I, so this is again another one of my grade school childhood friends who I still hung around with, and I I, mm. I see him he lives overseas now. But every I'll see him every once in a while still. Um, but he uh, he divorced Liza after ten years and a long time ago. But he had been a stage manager on Broadway, and he was a stage manager for her. That's how they met. Okay. 
<laughs> so he has having his 30th birthday and he said to Liza, you get, I want you to invite everybody you know in Holly. They've been married a couple of years at this point. I want you to invite everybody you know in Hollywood and in New York and we'll have just the most fantastic party up in her apartment on the Upper East Side, their apartment. And um, and so it was really, it was really true. I mean, I, I mm. met at that party, you know, Martin Scorsese was there, but so was Gregory Peck. And Lucille Ball came in, uh, and just and it was it was, it was Meatloaf and Harvey Keitel and uh, all these people, and and I was standing kind of in an area that was near the front door, and and and, and I heard a knocking, and nobody else seemed to notice it, so I went, I answered the door at Liza Minnelli's apartment, and I had written the Kiss book, and I had written all these kind of parody articles about um, the kiss and I opened the door and there is Gene Simmons. And I can't imagine what Gene Simmons thinks he's going to the coolest, most high class Hollywood party, the uh, Hollywood slash New York party in history, which it was. And there I am like his tormentor his his, his, <laughs> you know, whatever. I'm like, Dude, what are you doing here? He says, "What are you doing here?" And and then he says, "Well, let me introduce you my date." And his date with her big hair and was uh, Diana Ross. He was going out with Diana Ross. Amazing. <laughs> and it was just, oh, it was crazy. And I'll have you know that I was one of the last six people to leave the party. And the party that evening concluded with me running around the apartment with, uh, well, started out with a Farrah Fawcett on my shoulder. And, and then, and then, uh, and Liza Minnelli on my other shoulder. Uh, I had them both and I was running around the apartment and they, and, and Ryan O'Neill thought I was insane and was going to jump out the window with them or something. Oh, my God. Anyways, that, <laughs> Not that's, a bad way to spend an evening. Yeah. So, yes, that was that was some party. One more, and then we'll move on. Bruce Springsteen. You oh. went on tour with him at one point, and you begin Loudmouth with a Bruce Springsteen memory, and you end it with that. He really yeah. frames the book, which tells me a lot about how important he must be to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was and is. I mean, I haven't seen him in a. I haven't seen him in a while, but you know, last time I saw him, which was probably ten years, um, he was. Uh, he didn't recognize me, and I said, "Bruce, it's it's me." And I said, "Robert Duncan," and he's like. Oh shit! And he was kind of in the middle of all his bodyguards, and he he just came over and gave me a hug, and it was nice. And um, you know, we could have been close. He he wanted. He, I remember he invited me down to the Jersey Shore. I think that's in the book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the money to get down to the Jersey Shore. I was so broke. 
and I didn't have the money and I didn't want to ask him for the money. And I was also bashful. I didn't want to be anybody's, you know, super fan or say, you know, I'm like, I was, I was overly proud. If I was friends with a rock star, I'd make fun of the rock star. And, and I did all of, all of them. The ones I became friends with, I would tease them. And I, that's what a lot of them liked. I think Gene Simmons liked me because I would tease him. But uh, Bruce, yeah, and that story in the in the book where um, Bruce Bruce called me at Cream and left a message said, "Hey, come to Cleveland." When I was in Detroit, and I still have the the little pink slip because we didn't have voicemail, we didn't have. Oh, that's I, fabulous! There's a picture of it on my on my website, and it just said BS. <laughs> he wouldn't give his name. He, he so the, the receptionist wrote. He said BS and said, come to Cleveland. And so I went down to, to see a show in Cleveland because it's not that far from Detroit. Drove down, I guess drove down there. And, um, and you know, I knew this guy uh, in Cleveland, um, Peter Lochner. I, I changed his name in the book because it's not entirely him, but, you know, like a lot of things, it's mostly him. And, and I, I said to Bruce, I said, hey, I know this guy is a Cleveland native. He can really, he could show us the real Cleveland. And Bruce said, all right. And so Lochner showed up in, you know, some insane junker of a car full of crap. And he was, he was a nut. And, and, and I, I liked him. I knew him. I'd met him through Lester, and, but we'd gotten along. And, and, uh, and he later went on to be one of the founders of Pear Ubu and, and, and and I was just astonished, oh, a year or so ago, when I saw in the, in the New York Times that there was, there's a box set now of Peter Locke. Really? Of his stuff. And it was like, because I remember he used to bring tapes up to Lester's house, and he'd play them, and I'd think, what is this shit? And, <laughs> uh, you know, it would just seem like amateur shit to me, but uh, but uh, in, in, in recent years, I've I've understood basically mm. more, more but anyways Lochner came and picked me and bruce up and i said bruce i oh, you sit in the passenger seat no 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 you sit there and bruce sat in the back and like with his arms over the front seat and we drove around cleveland and it was really like you know and, and i said in the book it was when bruce was still skinny he hadn't gone through his yeah his his weightlifting phase bodybuilding phase and we just drove around cleveland and and Lochner showed us all sorts of not the usual sights. It was such a fun day. And and then um, at the end, Peter went into his glove compartment um, and got a bunch of, got a handful of bullets. <laughs> of course, of course he had bullets in his glove compartment. <laughs> and he handed one to Bruce and one to me. And he said, this is how we remember. That's amazing. And, uh, I, and I did, I kept that, I said in the book, I kept the bullet for a really long time. We go down to the river, and into the river we die. Oh, down to the river we ride. Then I got Mary pregnant, and man, that was all she It was one of those things where life is symbolic without trying, you know. It was like, okay, 
I realized, you know, I, I went through this amazing, amazing memory excavation for this book. And, um, and when I got to, uh, you know, when, then you realize, oh, shit, that, that was like, uh, that meant something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The book, the, the, the genesis of Loudmouth was that, that I was, I, my wife and I were living in San, San Francisco in a tall building. First time we ever really lived in an apartment building. And one day I walked out and a guy jumped off the roof and killed himself. Damn. And landed right near me at this whole long story. Well, I, he did it while thing. you were actually out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He. he oh, my he, God. And, um. And uh, I wrote a thing about it for LitHub um, that, that they they ran um, on their website because um, it was it was uh, anyways it blew it was so traumatic because the guy was you know it was he could have hit me he threw some shit down before he jumped off the roof he threw an umbrella down to try to I realize now he's trying to get me to get out of the way oh. and it was uh, and I was the only person there it was. I had been out the night before, and I was drinking too much, and I was going to work late, and so I was, and so I was the only one there. It was an odd hour, and uh, Awful. and so, but so it was so traumatic. I was so freaked I'm out. sure, and, and I was, and but about a week later, I, that's when I started writing. It was like I did. I didn't. I didn't know why I was writing, but I just I could you know couldn't sleep. I was having just re, uh, you know, um, repeats of this uh, vision in my head, and so I just wrote and wrote and wrote for thirteen months, and it was like at the end of it, it was like, wow, I feel better. But what was all that writing? But that was the, that was the excavation of of my memory where I found stuff I never thought I could remember, and a lot of the so much of the stuff I did, we were drinking so much it was hard, it was hard to remember, but I managed to extract it so that's where i you know, recalled the peter lochner and the bullets thing with springsteen well i remember when i first made contact with you about doing this podcast you sent me a seven second video clip of jimmy page being directed to you for an interview right uh, please bob come is going to ask you a couple of questions hello bob how are you doing thanks for coming Excuse pleasure you you know, I'm a big Jimmy Page freak. I know you are. That's why I sent it to you. What was that interaction like? And were there other interactions with you and Jimmy Page or other members of Led Zeppelin? No, that was it. It was years ago when I had it. When I, we had this kid, uh, then I realized, you know, $25 book reviews, are, I mean, uh, record reviews are not going to support this kid. And so eventually wound up starting my own advertising and design company called it called Duncan Chan and it's still around. It's been around 32 years. Man. And, and I sold out a couple, about two years ago. And, uh, and uh, um, one of our clients, you know, so whenever something came up where there was a rock angle, we would get the gig. We would win uh -huh. the pitch. So we won the pitch to get to do hard rock hotels and cafes around the world to do advertising for them and we did a whole bunch of shit like where we we actually had them do a magazine and uh, we, we did some really cool stuff for them and and one of the things was this jimmy page thing they we 
we did a giant um we put together this idea for a giant concert at Hyde Park in London that would happen every summer. And okay. so every and we would have these the the hard rock would have this big party and they would try to get celebrities to come and they managed to get Jimmy Page to come to one and I would I would do a little quick video interview and so um which I did with with Page. Mm. And it was like the last time he dyed his hair, I think. Because he was <laughs> yes. he was Yeah, that's he, true. I, I can't I don't think in the clip he, he was still dark haired and he Yes and then he was. within the year he was white haired, so and you know, I think he looks so much better as a white hair with the white hair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that he's gone on natural. Gone natural. Well, I know that you said in loudmouth that you weren't cool, but I beg to differ, and yeah. I kind of feel cool by association. So there. Thanks for being on the show. This and thanks, thanks. for thanks for being my drinking buddy for the night. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah. It's my pleasure. You got you got me off to a good start on All right. Friday night. For more information on Robert Duncan, go to his website, www.duncanwrites.com. Find him on Twitter at Robert Duncan SF and Instagram at rduncansf. And pick up a copy of Loudmouth wherever you buy books. Good morning, campers. Okay, I'm putting my shades on now. This is Rock and Roll Radio. Come on, let's rock and roll with the remote. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 